0: Good morning, Church. Uh, The scripture reading for today is taken from Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 19. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when they came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place, with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. For those of you who are new here, my name is Z. am the lead pastor here at One Covenant. Church. so good to be able to see all of you here in the same place. Join me as we seek the Lord in a word of prayer to seek help to understand his word this morning. Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you that through your word, you are meeting with us, your people. And we so, we pray that you prepare our hearts now to hear from you and to be drawn close to you. You are God, you are the desire of our hearts, and you will bless us as we listen to your word, as we draw near to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My friends, if you've just come in, my name is Z. am the lead pastor here at One Covenant Church. If I've not met you, we'd love to get to know you after the service. So please do stay back, and we'd love to pray for you and talk to you. Uh, In our first Sunday here at Marina One, we're going to continue where we left off last week in the Gospel of Luke. In this church, we believe in what we call expository preaching. We take a book of the Bible, we break it down into its component parts, and then we work through uh, those component parts of the Scriptures. And by doing so, we believe that we are allowing God to set the agenda for our preaching for our pulpit schedule that God himself is choosing to speak to us. And if you've been here long enough, you know that God has an amazing way of giving us the right scripture at the right time. Last week in Luke chapter 6 verse 1 to 11, we see Jesus recovering for us the true meaning of Sabbath rest. Today in Luke chapter 6 verse 12 to 19, Jesus is going to recover for us the true meaning of work and mission. Jesus himself gets to work. And as Jesus gets to work, he recovers for us the true meaning of work. Look at verses 17 to 19. It says that Jesus goes down to a level place, and a great multitude of people from everywhere come to hear him and to be healed. So they came for two reasons, to hear Jesus and to be healed. And this is exactly what Jesus does. He heals them. And then later on, in verses 20 onwards, he preaches to them what will become known as the Sermon on the Mount, his most influential sermon. So Jesus heals them, and Jesus preaches to them. Now, what exactly is Jesus doing here in his work? Now, a few weeks ago, we looked at Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. Jesus in the synagogue, he opens up Isaiah 61, and he points to himself, and he says, he's the one that has been anointed by the Holy Spirit to proclaim good news to the poor, Liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. Now what is Jesus saying about his role? You see, friends, Jesus has come to restore all that has been broken by humanity's sin. Over the last few weeks in the Children's Catechism, we've been teaching the children about the seriousness of sin when we rebel against God. Everything is broken. Our relationship with God is broken. Our relationship with one another is broken. Our relationship with our lived environment is broken. And there is no way for any of us to fix that broken relationship with God, fix that broken relationship with one another, and to fix the broken relationship with our lived environment. And yet God, in His grace, does something to fix that. He sends the person of Jesus Christ. And through Jesus' work, He comes to save souls. But more than that, to restore everything that has ever been broken by sin. That is why he comes to proclaim good news, liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind. That is why he preaches the gospel, and that is why he heals. There is so much more than just the details. Jesus is at work restoring everything that has been broken by sin. Jesus gets to work. But here's the interesting thing, friends. Did you notice verses 12 to 16? Go to verses 12 to 16. In verses 12 to 16, as Jesus gets to work, he does something before he does his work. He takes time to choose 12 from among his disciples and to make them apostles. Now, a disciple is someone who learns. An apostle is someone who is sent. You see, in the ancient world, an apostle was the representative of the king. The apostle had the king's authority and could act on behalf of the king. So what was Jesus doing as he began his work? He was choosing for himself 12 representatives who would carry his authority and speak and act on his behalf. Jesus was delegating, in a sense, his authority to these 12 apostles to do his work. So how does Jesus work in the world? Well, he chooses and delegates people to work the kind of things he wants to do in the world. And this is amazing, friends, because it means that the way God works in the world is through normal people like you and me. Now, a quick aside, the Twelve Apostles are unique. They are the foundation of the Church. They received the deposit of the Gospel and the Word of God, and they wrote it, and they are unique. There are no apostles like them today. But here's the thing. We have been building on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Ephesians 2.20, for 2,000 years. We have taken the message that they have given to us, the gospel. We have taken the word of God and we have preached it and we have obeyed it. We have built the church on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So in that sense, although we are not apostles, we do apostolic ministry They are unique in a sense that there is no apostle like them today. The foundation of the church has already been laid. The scriptures have been given to us. But we continue to do apostolic ministry as we build upon their foundation. Which means, friends, that as we see how they were commissioned to mission by Jesus, it is fair to say we can draw lessons and analogies about how Jesus himself commissions us to his mission and to his work. Now, Legan Duncan, who is the Chancellor of Reformed Theological Seminary, he puts it this way. Their job, the original apostles, was to lay the foundation. But the New Testament uses the word apostle for others who weren't part of the Twelve. Those were vested also with Jesus' own authority. It's anyone, Legan Duncan says, who is sent out to do the work of the Great Commission in their sense. All of us are given a new mission in life when we come to faith, in Jesus Christ let me say that again all of us are given a new mission in life when we come to faith in Jesus Christ and friends let me tell you why this is so important last week I shared a very scary statistic the survey was done in Singapore and 73% of Singapore workers say that they are very unhappy and if you think about it that's three out of four workers who say that they are unhappy now part of the solution we saw was in last week's sermon We need to recover the true meaning and intention of Sabbath rest. But now, in this passage, we're going to get the other part of the solution that God is giving to us. And that is, we need to recover a sense of mission in terms of the work that we do. We need to see our work as part of something greater. We need to see our work as something transcendent. We need to see that even in our work, however mundane, we are sent once. And as we see that, our work, whatever you do, will be infused with a certain value and meaning as your work is connected to the greater work that God is doing in this world. Now, I know there are several non-Christians among us, and you might be thinking to yourself, that may be very relevant to Christians, but not to me. I'm just trying to make a living and get by. I don't really care about these transcendent things. Uh, The fact is, you do. And I know that you do, because... A couple of hundred thousand people have flown in for the Taylor Swift concert this week. Now, John Forsyth uh, is an Anglican minister in Melbourne. He actually pastors the church that Cindy and I, together with the girls, attended while we were in Melbourne. We don't know him because there was another vicar at that point in time. Uh, But he attended the Melbourne concert uh, with a t-shirt that said, Hi, it's me. I'm the father. It's me. I want one of those t-shirts. You think I can get one? (laughs) And after that experience, he wrote an article, and this is what he said. Somehow, whatever the song, Swift managed to make a personal connection with 96,000 people at once, emotionally connecting with people's desire for both the transcendent and the imminent through her music. She is at once the global megastar and the girl next door. When I asked several Swifties why they love Taylor Swift so much, the common answer is this, she's authentic. She gets me. Now, this is what Forsyth says. To be truly seen and understood by someone transcendent is deeply attractive. So Swift's genius lies in her ability to connect with our longings. Now, I'll tell you, I'm not a Swift fan. My, my daughter is, but I'm not. But this week I tried to understand, you know, so I had this piece of paper, I wrote down the different eras. And I tried to listen to a song from every era just to get a sense of what's going on and why there's such an attraction to Taylor Swift. Uh, I like her older stuff better, maybe because <laughs> I'm also older. And there's a song that I listened to called uh, Teardrops on My Guitar. <laughs> and as I listened to that song, I felt like picking up the guitar myself. And as I strummed my guitar, I found tears welling up in my eyes because some of the lyrics were just, uh, okay, let's not go there. <laughs> she has an amazing ability to connect with our longings and our desires. She is the girl next door. But at the same time, she's this great and grand global megastar. So she's coming near to you, she's imminent, and yet she's connecting you to, to something transcendent this global movement called what i don't know what it's called but all these swifties everywhere so so even if you say you know i'm not a christian there is a longing in your heart for the transcendent you know that your life means more than what it is here now you want to be connected to something bigger and grander here's the thing friends even taylor swift herself will admit to you that there's a limit to the kind of transcendence she can bring you. Why? Because she's a human being. Now, John Forsyth he points out that in Antihero, she actually cautions her listeners to not look to heroes like her as their savior. And she also talks about, in that song, how her own fame hinders her from having real, meaningful connections. So she's great at connecting our emotions and connecting us to something greater. But she herself understands, and we should understand too, that there's a limit to what Taylor Swift can give us. Here's the think, friends. Jesus Christ doesn't have that problem. He's the one that can draw close to us in imminence as our older brother. And yet he is the Lord of the universe. You have longings, you have aspirations in your work, in your career, in your studies. Well, Jesus Christ gets that. He understands that. He sees that. He says it's important. These longings and aspirations are important. And he does more than that, friends. He connects your work and your studies and all that you're pursuing to a bigger, greater, and grander plan. His own story and his own work worked out in the universe. So, friends, as we look at how Jesus commissions, whom Jesus commissions, and why Jesus commissions, I want you to see that you are precious to Jesus, that your longings and aspirations and your work are precious to Jesus, and he is connecting all of that to a greater and grander story, what he is doing to restore all that is broken in this world. Are you ready? Let's look at point number one, how Jesus commissions. Come with me to verses 12 to 13. It says here that Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night... He continued in prayer to God. And only after he had prayed all night, when the day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. So how did Jesus commission his apostles? He didn't just look at their CVs and try to match it with the job scope. No, he spent his whole night praying before he was ready to act. Now why is this, friends? Well, because Jesus recognized that choosing his apostles was not a trivial matter. It was something that he needed God's wisdom and guidance for. And what Jesus has done has become a pattern for the early church. If you continue reading the New Testament in Acts chapter 1, 6, 13, and 14, God's people are always in prayer before they make a major decision because they recognize that they need the guidance and wisdom of God. Choosing an apostle or choosing how and what you do in your work is not a trivial matter. We all need the wisdom and guidance of God to make the right decision. It's not just about you, my friends. It's not just about the company or the job that you're working in. It's about God and what He is doing in the world. And this is the amazing thing, friends. We don't have the wisdom we need to make the choices that we need to make We don't understand ourselves well enough, and we don't understand the world well enough if we're humble enough to admit that. But God does, and God wants to give us the wisdom and the guidance to make a choice about our work that will be deeply fulfilling for us, but also connects us to the greater thing that God is doing, Jesus praying, and he left a pattern for us and for the early church to pray. For every major decision that we are to make. It's an acknowledgement of our weakness in prayer. And yet also it's an acknowledgement that God is willing to give us wisdom. The wisdom that we need. Do you know in James chapter 1 verse 5. James says if any of you lacks wisdom. Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And he will be given him. That's an invitation. It's an invitation to recognize hey I am not the king of this world. I lack full understanding, but God doesn't have that problem. And when I come to Him in prayer, He is willing and He is able to guide, to lead, and to pour out His wisdom into my life. And friends, I want to invite you to a life of prayer, even about the mundane and small decisions of your life, even about the decisions that you are making in your career. Because you're not just working, you're connecting your career There's something greater, God's greater work of redemption and restoration. But here's the thing, friends. You need something to pray about. You need some, what do you call it, some content to pray about. So let me just offer you a couple of things to pray about. Now, Tim Keller says that when you want to discern your vocation or calling, there are three things that need to come together. Affinity, ability, and opportunity. He's just kind of reworking the old Puritan way of talking about the internal call and external call. But let me explain it to you. Affinity is what you sense in your heart, your passion. It's answering the question, where does my passion vibrate or resonate with the needs that are out there in the world? So affinity, that's one thing that you can bring to God in prayer. What are my affinities? What am I passionate about? Where does my longing resonate with the needs that are in this world? But the second thing you do need to look at is ability. What are you good at? What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? And that is something that you can bring before God in prayer and bring before other people. Now Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, uh, he has a very cute way of talking about things. And he talks about preachers, or people who want to be in ministry, uh, who spend all their effort, they're so passionate, but the more they thump on the scriptures, the less they get. Right? And he's saying, hey, I appreciate the passion, we love these people, and we want them to be productive, but they should not be preachers. You need to be in an environment where you can be honest with God about your strengths and your weaknesses, and be in an environment where other people can pray along with you and guide you along, who love you enough to tell you, hey, you're strong in that area, and hey, you, you really are not very good at that. And as they do that, you will discover how your affinity and your ability Meet one another, not just what you're passionate about and how you resonate with what's happening in the world, but also what you are truly strong at and what you are not so good at. That is another thing to pray to God personally about and together with God's people. Finally, opportunity. And that's where God is at work and others are at work as well. You need to ask the question what are the opportunities that are opening up? You need to talk to people. You need to talk to the leaders in the church. You need to talk to a trusted friend to say, where are opportunities opening up for what I am passionate about and what I am good at to really be actualized to meet my full potential? Now, these are things that you can bring to God in personal prayer. But you will notice that the local church, the early church, they didn't just pray personally. They prayed corporately. They came together and they prayed for one another They spoke with one another. And that too, my friends, is a way that God gives wisdom. He might not speak directly from heaven. He might give you a sense of conviction about what you need to do, a sense of insight, of guidance, a fresh way of looking at things. God does those things as you pray to Him. But as you gather with other people and you share your heart and they pray for you, they might be able to offer you wisdom, if they truly love you and care about you, that might point you in the right direction. So friends, how does Jesus commission? He recognizes that matching you and the thing that you want to do in this world for him is not a trivial matter. And he invites us to prayer. And as we pray, we're inviting him to come and speak to us. We're inviting him to take part in the decisions and choices that we make about our career, about our work, because it is more than just about you. It's more than just about making a living. It's about what God is doing here In the world. This is how Jesus commissions through prayer. But the second thing, let's look at whom Jesus commissions. Let's look at verses 14 to 16. That's the list of the twelve apostles, the twelve people that Jesus chose. Now, if you're not familiar with the scriptures, you might think that Jesus picks the best of the best, the best. His 18, the elite of the elite of the elite. But friends, as you work through the list of 12 apostles, what will strike you is not how remarkable they are, but how unremarkable they are. In fact, how broken and sinful they are. And friends, at least for me, as I look at this list, it tells me that there's hope even for someone like me. And if there's hope for someone like me, I can guarantee there's hope for someone like you. Let's look at the list. It begins with Simon, Andrew, James, and John. Who were fishermen? Simon, also known as Peter. Simon, also known as the one who is always having his foot in his mouth. Simon, the one who denies the Lord Jesus Christ three times, and yet God uses to be a pillar of the early church. Fishermen. Simon, Andrew, James, and John. And then there's Philip. Philip is the man who often struggles to understand what Jesus is doing. He's chosen as an apostle, too. Bartholomew? Now, we don't really know who this is. Some people think he's the Pharisee Nathaniel. And remember the Pharisees and how they were against Jesus. Jesus picks one of them and makes them one of his apostles. Matthew, also known as Levi, the hated tax collector, the traitor of his people, the one who enriched himself at the benefit of others. Jesus calls Matthew to be one of his apostles. Thomas, who had become known as the doubter, James, almost nothing is recorded about James. We just know his name. Simon the Zealot. Now what's a zealot? A zealot is a revolutionary who was seeking to overthrow the Roman government. This was one of Jesus' apostles. Judas, the son of James, again very little is said of him. And then Judas Iscariot, who would betray Jesus. Friends, this is Jesus' eighteen. And so Jesus' A team is actually his C team. Uh, One of my early mentors in preaching, uh, he actually said, you know, guys, when you graduate from seminary, you think you're an A-plus preacher, but at best you're a C-minus. Very hard to hear, but very true. Very true. And this is Jesus' A team. It was actually a C-minus team. There was a fisherman, tax collectors, a revolutionary, a skeptical man, and a future traitor. And not only... That they would have hated one another in the natural. Matthew was a tax collector that was working in cahoots with the Roman government to exploit his own people to enrich himself. Simon the Zealot was a revolutionary that wanted to overthrow the Roman government. And Jesus brings them together. Friends, this is Jesus' 18. It's a C minus team. It's a team that wouldn't come together and wouldn't be able to function and wouldn't be able to do the things that they are called to do unless Jesus is really Savior and Jesus is really Lord. The only thing that binds them together is the recognition of their sinfulness before Almighty God and the great Savior and King that Jesus is. Which means, friends, there is hope for you and there is hope for me. I know if you're a non-Christian, you look around and you think to yourself, my goodness, I, I'm not sure I fit in. I'm not the typical kind of person uh, that becomes a Christian. Let me say to you, friend, there is no such thing as a typical Christian. You just have to stick around long enough and talk to more people to realize how different we are. And yet God has brought us together and given us a Spirit and called us into mission because He is gracious. There is no typical person, friends that becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. That means you can become a follower of Jesus Christ. There's no typical person that God calls into mission, and there are all kinds of different ways that God calls people into mission. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Why did Jesus choose Judas Iscariot? He spent a whole night in prayer. He received the wisdom and the guidance of God, and yet he managed to choose someone who would later Betray him. Now, we're going to get to that a bit later. But let me just make a quick note about Judas. Even though he betrayed Jesus, he was still useful in the three years that he ministered together with the other apostles and with Jesus. I mean, he handled the finances of the group. He was still useful even in those three years. Now, John Calvin gives us two other reasons that I think are very helpful for us. Calvin says this, Jesus chose Judas that we may not feel excessive uneasiness when unprincipled men occupy the situation of teachers in the church or when professors of the gospel become apostates. Does it surprise you, friends, when someone who is significant, a leader in the Christian church, turns out to be a charlatan? Does it surprise you, friends, that people who can preach the gospel so well end up falling into deep sin? Well, it should shock us to an extent, but it should not surprise us because even Jesus had his Judas. And so this is here, Calvin tells us, to help us be steady when the boat is shaking, when we see even the very best men being men at best. But the second reason that Calvin gives us this, so that those who occupy a higher rank may not indulge in self-complacency. Let me say that again. That those who occupy a higher rank may not indulge in self-complacency. It's for the leaders of the church, it's for those with any sense of responsibility to know that there but for the grace of God go you and me. So Judas is there to give us assurance. When things like that happen, even Jesus had his Judas. But it's for people in authority to recognize that we need to cling to Jesus and his grace. We cannot be complacent. We cannot cruise. We need to continue following Jesus. So friends, if even Judas is carried, the traitor could be useful to Jesus and his kingdom while it lasted, you too can be useful to Jesus. There is no typical person, friends, that Jesus calls to follow him, and there's no typical person that he chooses to use In his work. Finally, let's look at why Jesus commissions. Now, we saw in verse 18 that Jesus came to proclaim the gospel and to demonstrate the power of the gospel. He came to proclaim the kingdom of God and he came to demonstrate the power of that same kingdom. And he calls his apostles and commissions them to doing the same thing. If you turn your pages in your Bible to Luke chapter 9, in the first few verses, you will see them doing exactly what Jesus did. They were proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and they were healing the sick. Now again, we understand that their role is unique. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, it calls the signs and wonders that the apostles did the signs of a true apostle. Jesus' miracles and the miracles of the apostles attested to who they were and the unique role they played in the kingdom of God and establishing the foundation of the church. But yet, friends, there is still an analogy between what they did and what we did. We do. They were preaching the gospel. They were preaching the word. They were preaching the kingdom. But they were also healing. They were doing proclamation ministry. But also demonstration ministry. They were telling us the gospel, but they were also showing us the power of the gospel to change and transform. You see, friends, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus hasn't just come to save souls. He's come to restore all that is broken. And as we participate in that work, we are doing the work of the kingdom. New Testament scholar Greg Perry puts it this way, Jesus healed, he cast out demons, he distributed food, And he befriended and forgave repentant sinners in order to restore lost lambs to the flock of God. Jesus did not perform miracles primarily to wow the crowds. He did wondrous things to restore people to their roles as divine image bearers, to their proper worship, to work, to family relationships, and wider social responsibilities, even to their right minds and bodies. And friends, that is what we are called to do as well. To both proclaim and to demonstrate the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To proclaim the message of the kingdom, but to also live out this new kingdom reality. Jesus has come not just to save souls, but to restore all that is broken. And as you participate in that, we are doing the work of the kingdom. So friends, every time you do something... To help people take one step closer to reconciliation with God. Every time you do something to reconcile one person with another, every time you do something to reconcile people with the environment in the name of Christ, you are participating in a small way in what Jesus is doing in reversing the effects of sin in the world. And it doesn't matter who you are or what you do. You might be a preacher. Or a teacher. God bless preachers and teachers. I think we need them sometimes. But you might be a medical professional. You might be a lawyer, an accountant, a stay-at-home parent, a teacher, a cleaner, a student, or a garbage collector. If you do your work in the name of Christ, what are you doing? You're bringing order out of chaos. You're reconciling people where there's strife. You're bringing knowledge where there's ignorance. And all of it, friends... In some small way is part of God's mission to proclaim his kingdom and demonstrate the power of that kingdom and friends that is how your work no matter what kind of work you are doing is connected to the work of Jesus and when you see that connection when you have fresh eyes to see that in these things you're not just making a living you're not just getting by You're not just expressing yourself, although you must. You're participating with Jesus in the reversal of sin, in the renewal of all creation. And that infuses, friends, all that we do, secular or sacred, with meaning, with value, with purpose, and with joy. We connect what we do in the present with the eternal and the transcendent what Jesus is doing, what God is doing in the world. friends, I know what some of you are thinking. How can we be sure that what we do will succeed? How can we be sure that what we give ourselves to will indeed have an eternal dividend? There are many times that we feel very discouraged, uh, even in ministry, as we give ourselves to this work. Let me just say two things in closing. Now, discouragement, friends, is is a very real reality. Whether you're working in a secular setting or even in ministry, discouragement comes. People disappoint you. Relationships get broken. Plans are unfulfilled. And we all need to learn how to deal with discouragements, both in ministry as well as in our work. It's a reality of a broken world. Uh, In the U.S., when I was... There in January, uh, Sean Michael Lucas, you know, he's a, uh, he's, he's a pastor, Presbyterian pastor, and he was teaching us grace-centered leadership. Uh, towards the end of the course, there was one thing that he did that was so uh, ama- amazing and, and really encouraging. You see, most of us in that class were pastors, had served for at least five or six years, some for 20 over years. And as you heard the different stories, you could hear stories of encouragement many times, but also stories of deep hurt and discouragement. What did John Michael Lucas do? Well, he pointed us to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Now, this is the Apostle Paul talking to the Corinthian Christians. And there was a strain in their relationship. And now they were asking Paul, what is your letter of recommendation? What is your CV? What are the qualifications that you have to speak to us about the things of God? And this is what Paul says. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? And this is where Paul gets really personal. He says to them, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And John Lucas said this, you know when you're deeply discouraged, think about the people, not not in a, a proud way, not in a conceited way, but in a humble way. Think about one or two people that have an impact, that you've impacted through your ministry and through your work. You don't have to think of too many. Just one or two people who have been helped by the things that you have done at work, whether as a lawyer or a teacher. Just think of one or two. You know what John Lucas said? These, these are your letters of recommendation written on hearts of flesh. I mean, when he said that, I I was bawling. I brought to mind different people that had come through the doors of our church. Little things that we had done that had meant something to them. They are the letters of recommendation. So friends, we will be discouraged in our work. We will be discouraged even in ministry. But one practical thing we can do, friends, is to bring to mind letters of recommendation written on hearts of flesh. Think of people that have been touched by your work, by the things that you have done. And if you're not sure who they are, ask someone else to point them out to you. But second thing is this. Let's go to verse 16 again, and let's look at Judas Iscariot once more. It says here that Judas Iscariot would become the traitor. And remember, friends, that this was no accident. It didn't just happen. Jesus spent an entire night in prayer. He knew exactly who Judas was. He knew exactly what Judas would do to him. So Jesus' choice of Judas was a deliberate choice. Why? Why did Jesus choose Judas if he knew that Jesus, Judas would betray him? Well, friends, because Jesus knew that in order for his mission to succeed, in order for him to save souls, reconcile the broken with God, and to restore all that is broken, he would need a Judas to betray him to the cross of Calvary. Friends, it was no accident. Jesus set his own path to the cross. Acts 2:23 says that Jesus was delivered up to his death according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Why did Jesus choose Judas? Because he was laying out a plan to go to the cross. And it is only through the cross where Jesus dies for the sins of the world, for your sins and my sins. It is only through the cross that we can be reconciled to him And it's only through the cross that everything that is broken can be fixed because it's only through the cross that the very root of all that is wrong in this world can be resolved. And Jesus did that for you. He did that for me. So friends, how can we be sure that God's plan will succeed because Jesus went all the way to the cross according to the definite plan and for knowledge of God to ensure that success. Now, friends, success may not look like what you want it to look, but as you connect your work and your ministry and your mission to the mission of God, you can be assured that the small things you do and the big things that you do connect to His great plan that will never fail. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us to this place, Marina One. And we recognize again that this is a gift from you. And if it's a gift from you, Father, you want us to use it uh, as a gift, not just to bless ourselves, but to bless others as well. So as Pastor Joel prayed, Father, I want to just echo that prayer, Lord. And as we gather here as your people, may this truly be set apart as a place of worship, where we will encounter you, where people who do not know you may be drawn close to you, and encounter the true and living God, through the lives that we live, the love they experience and the warmth that they sense here in this place. So Father, set us apart as a people, set this place apart as a place of worship. Father, Father, we also ask you to set this place apart as a place of witness. We thank you, Father, that you've called us not just to enjoy the good gifts that you've given to us, but to take those good gifts and to go with those good gifts into a world that is broken and needy, that needs to hear of a Father who loves them, a Savior who has saved them, and a Spirit who wants to live in our hearts. We run, Father, with the news of Jesus saving souls but also restoring all that is broken. And we pray, Father, in small ways and in big ways, we would participate in your mission to bring this gospel to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.